Welcome, everybody, to the Always So Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. And I am your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and truly grateful to share this episode with you today. Well, I think we've all heard the narrative that faith and science do not like each other. And at best are necessary evils, uh, strange bedfellows that kind of get along just because they kind of feel like they need to. But what if there is a way that faith and science can play nicely together? And not just play nicely together, but actually need and support one another. What if the right conditions are there that we can uphold the beauty and the mystery of a deep Catholic faith, as well as the significance and the substance and the, the strength and integrity of the hard sciences? What if there was a way forward? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Joining me today is the one and only Dr. Chris Baglow, Director of the Science and Religion Initiative at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Baglow has made his career of finding these points of integration between the Catholic faith and the hard sciences, and particularly the natural sciences, biology, evolution, cosmology, astronomy. What do these things have in common with one another? And so in today's episode, we really spend a lot of time talking about the points of connection and what happens uh, when we fall into scientism that is devoid of faith, but equally the dangers of when people of faith are shallow in their understanding of the sciences. Towards the end of the episode, we tackle specific faith in science situations, Galileo and the Catholic Church, Darwin's faith, intelligent aliens. What happens if we find sentient beings on other planets? What does that mean for us as Christians with regards to being made in the image and likeness of God and the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Yes, we talk about that on the Always Hope podcast. And lastly, we do spend a few minutes talking about how Catholics should approach climate change. So it's another great, heavy-hitting episode for you today. I pray that it helps you in your faith journey. And when it is done, please don't forget to subscribe to the show, share with your friends. And if you are so inclined, please leave a review because every one of those things does help getting this show out to a larger audience. So thank you all faithful listeners for your help and your support. God bless everybody. And let's get into this episode with Dr. Chris Baglow. Dr. Chris Baglow, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. It's a, it's a beautiful February day here in September in uh, <laughs> Southern Indiana. Yeah, fe- yeah, February for us in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. for, for me in Louisiana, because I, I'm st- I still have, a, uh, uh, I still have uh, a Louisiana attachment. So all of the weather here is gauged by whether or not I've experienced it in Louisiana. <laughs> what time of year I would. So so you're in South Bend, Indiana right now. You left Notre Dame Seminary to head up to Notre Dame University That's right. uh, to continue this, this mission, I guess, if we can say in your life of finding the integrating points between faith, the Catholic faith in particular, and science, the natural sciences in particular. Correct? Right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So and just- Yeah. As a, yeah. as a way to kind of get into this, you know, I would love to you for you just introduce kind of as a theologian, what drew you to this as being kind of your 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 focus in your area of study? It's a, such a great, fascinating place to be. Well, actually, it's uh, it, it, it's not as um, 
intellectual as one might think. <laughs> that my work in faith and science is actually the outgrowth of one month as a refugee after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, I was just moved into a brand uh, a new home we had bought in Metairie, Louisiana. Um, when five weeks later, Katrina flooded that home. I was the chair of the theology department at Our Lady of Holy Cross College, now the University of Holy Cross in New Orleans. And this is 2005, for those of you who don't remember when Katrina hit. And it was during that period of time that I was asked by a president of a Catholic high school in Mobile, Alabama, Father Bryce Shields, if I would uh, be willing to propose the development of a curriculum for their religion program on faith and science. At the time, we were out of our home, as I mentioned, because of the flooding. Um, it was only a week after the storm had hit. And the rumor on the street was that Our Lady of Holy Cross College might not open again. And so I said yes to a project that at the time I probably had no uh, real qualifications to undertake. Um, but it was in doing that that I kind of launched a whole new trajectory in my career that I didn't expect. And so I thank God for that all the time. I wouldn't be at the University of Notre Dame had I not said yes to Father Shields when he asked me to do that project. Um, so that's how I got involved in it. So uh, out of a sense of need and feeling that God was calling me to do it precisely because it seemed like everything else was being swept away. Um, but what quickly began to happen for me is a growing sense of excitement about things I had never realized about the relationship between the Catholic faith and Catholic theology and the modern sciences and a glorious history that the church has of an openness to science and of theology being informed by science, theological reflection actually depending on scientific discoveries and scientific insights to help understand what God has revealed better. And so that's kind of how I got there. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So Katrina, just by, you know, being asked by this priest in Mobile to start this initiative, and then from there, just kind of falling in love with something that you didn't even realize it was, was there for you. Yeah, yeah. October of 2005 was a really banner moment because if you recall, Pope John Paul II had just died in April. And I was on the phone with a priest who uh, is the editor-in-chief of Midwest Theological Forum, the textbook company that publishes my textbook on faith and science. And... He said, have you ever read any of the addresses that John Paul II gave about faith and science? And I said, no. And he goes, well, I happen to have a zip drive uh, with those addresses. Would you like them? And I said, absolutely. You know, he sent it to me. I figured there'd be a dozen addresses in there. There were 143 addresses from uh, October of 1979 all the way through four or five months before his death. Wow. And it was reading those that kind of opened my mind to seeing the harmony between faith and science in a new way. Wow. And to question this idea that there was somehow some conflict somewhere between the two. He had addresses to nuclear physicists. He had addresses to something called the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. I was like, the Pope has an academy of science? I never <laughs> even heard such a thing, right? Uh, a letter uh, and actually a precious document to the director of the Vatican Observatory in 1988, where he lays out how he sees faith and science coming together. Uh, and then a whole host of other things, students of science, biologists, I mean, you name it, it was all there. And so I spent about a month and a half just reading them one by one by one. Mm. And that's really what kind of sent me, set me first on the uh, 
path that I needed to write the textbook and that with a curriculum, which became a textbook. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not surprised, obviously, because I know GP2 was such a, uh, a man invested in culture and trying to answer the questions that, that people had. But I think yeah. somebody listening to this might be might be surprised because it seems like there's there's this battle, you know, where it's like the two can't meet. It's like science is on one side and then faith is on the other side. So just kind of at least generally speaking, and we'll dive more deeply into this. How have you been able to reconcile those two? How have you seen through reading yeah. JP2 and others that there actually is this beautiful kind of integration between both and that they're not as diametrically opposed as as the culture might seem to think? Well, the first thing that St. John Paul II does is he distinguishes faith and science as ways of understanding the world. And I think for a lot of people, the idea might be that, well, faith is trying to answer the same questions as science, and consequently, um, one of them has to give, right? Either science comes up with a more compelling explanation and then faith falls away, or faith comes up with a more compelling explanation and then science falls away. It's absolutely, and John Paul II was clear on this over and over and over again, not like that at all. Um, as he says in one place, he says, theology is about answering questions of why, and science is about answering questions of how, right? So, uh, and a rabbi, uh, I don't think he was relying on John Paul II's work, but Rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts it this way. He says, science takes things apart to show us how they work. But religion brings things together to show us what they mean. And so being able to make that distinction was really the first and most important step, right? That I never had to think about some physical hypothesis, some explanation and from biology or that kind of thing as something that would ever be contrary to faith because faith is not answering the same kind of questions. It answers questions about why the universe exists, why God creates the universe, calls it into being, right? And what the role of human beings are in the universe, what his plan is for the universe and for human beings. It's about those questions. And as I reflected on it, I started thinking, I'm a, I'm a systematic theologian, which means I deal with doctrine. I started thinking about all kinds of theological, key theological issues um, and how well they fit this paradigm. So think about the Eucharist. We believe that the Eucharist, the consecrated host, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, right? Truly, really, truly, and substantially present. But we don't know how that happens. There's no way a scientist could come up with an explanation of how bread becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This is an ineffable mystery, right? Right. Um, so, you know, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Can science, can, can anthropology, the science of anthropology, explain how someone can be one person but yet fully God? Of course not, right? These are things that transcend the human mind. They're mysteries to which we give our reverence and adoration. And so realizing that, I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't give how explanations in my class to these mysteries. I explain what they mean for human life and how they change human life and human existence forever and for the salvation of the world. I don't spend any time talking about how? Because those how questions simply don't apply. Okay. So the, the questions that you said is, is, is that religion, if I heard it right, is trying to answer why and science yeah. is trying to answer how. And so right. when we have two very different questions, we can see that the answers to these questions um, are, are going to be different, of course. Right. Um, and, 
again, for me as a Catholic, I've, I've never really seen the, 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 the tension there. But again, I just feel like that, that, that tension, it is there. I mean, in this for, for people who are coming from a scientific perspective, because, because then it seems like, so, so I guess let me, let me, let me phrase this question differently. Is science then out of its lane when it's trying to ask the questions why? Um, well, it depends on how you're using your grammar, right? Got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people use the word, use the word why to ask questions that are actually what I'm calling how questions. Sure. You know? Sure. 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 Um, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, you could, you know, <laughs> no, that's actually not a good example. Uh, uh, why, you know, uh, why do stars produce the heavier elements? Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a question of how. That's right produce the heavier elements. Yes. So I'm using the words how and why in very distinct ways. Why as questions of meaning. Yes. Right? Right. Ultimate questions of 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 uh, what God's intentions are for the universe he creates, what it means for God to create, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. And those are those are things that we can only be told by God. Mm-hmm. We can't go on a we can't create a hypothesis and come up with an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The way science does. Right. Uh, science does, studies processes. Processes happen in time. God is eternal. God is not captured in time. Right. 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 Uh, so, yeah, that that is, in fact, the hardest thing, it seems, for people to wrap their minds around, that these two are not in some kind of competition. Last fall, I taught my first, first faith in science course at the University of Notre Dame. And it was interesting that at a, ver- a group of very eager, very gifted students. But they almost felt like somehow the narrative that they had been applying all along, right, that, uh, that, that they were being, that it was being taken from them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course, faith and science are in conflict. Mm-hmm. And you're going to show us how they're really not in conflict, but you're going to show us that as if they're talking about the same thing in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they're not. They're not. They're not. They're yeah, not. they're not. And so the first thing is to let that go. Mm-hmm. And there are sadly many people who are many people of faith who are trying to answer what they see as challenges from science okay. by offering how explanations, right? So if you go to the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky, mm-hmm. you'll find a group of very devout, very uh, dedicated believers who are trying to say this is how we can accept that the world is six thousand years old and that Adam wrote on dinosaurs. And that Noah's flood caused the environment to change in such a way that, you know, when in fact the Bible's not trying to give us scientific facts and details, right? Right. And they're, so they're, they're actually changing what theology does when they do that. But from the Catholic perspective, theology is not about answering those questions in the first place. See yeah. what I'm saying? I, yeah, I get you. I get you. So, so faith is about the deeper questions of meaning, of, of God's intention, God's purpose. Um, right. How we make sense of suffering, how we make sense of joy, how we make sense of this journey of life, what the purpose, the deeper questions that are there. Yeah. And, and that's, of course, through divine revelation. But as Catholics, obviously, there's there's natural reason and philo- philosophy that helps guide us in, in our exactly. intellect and being able to answer those type of questions. And then there's another set of questions that's kind of a breaking down of 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 the, the natural world and the, the natural areas. And so right. it seems that when we when we get caught in in that in the scientific inquiry as the only means of inquiry um that that becomes a limiting way of, of being able to ask these these deeper questions 
And, right. and if and if I'm correct here, right, it's when we when we only see the world um, through this natural lens, uh, we would call that what like a materialism or or is, yeah. that, is that right? Oh, scientism. Is scientism all, would be another. Science can offer truth. So why then is the scientific or the scientism or the materialism, the scientific inquiry, why has that become such a compelling um, kind of pursuit of truth? Why, why, is this, why has that just become such a compelling kind of mode in, in, in our culture today? There are many reasons. Yeah. Some of them are historical and some of them are contemporary. But I would offer you one that I think every Catholic should bring in an examination of conscience to see how they've been infected by this false idea. Um, because this false idea does affect everybody who lives in our culture. And it's the idea of the privatization of religion. The questions of meaning can't be objective, real, true, and universal for everyone. Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, because that's kind of it. It's because it's even in psychology, yeah. you know, which is a natural science, it's like spirituality is, is viewed as, as, an, as an addendum, you know, mm -hmm. where it's like, well, if it works for you, great. I mean, whatever, to whatever degree it helps you in your, in your mental health and your well-being, fantastic. So to whatever degree it helps you to answer the bigger questions or give you some purpose or hope in life, cool. That's fine. Right. But that's all right. subjective. That that that's not saying then that there's a, a more fundamental, more profound, or more a more deeper reality than what science itself can can even can even ask or, or answer. And in the Catholic Church, when you see fights, of, not about faith and science, but fights about whether this is liberal or this is conservative or that kind of thing, what you see is the outworking of a privatization of religion, because our culture wants to say, fine. You, 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 uh, you liberal Catholics, you just do your own thing. You conservative Catholics, you just do your own thing. What the church says is that, no, let's all unite ourselves, right, uh, in uh, faith to the one reality, the one truth, the truth that God has revealed in Christ. And that's a hard thing to do. And we fight about these things, right, as if those are the most important things that mm -hmm. we really miss, I think, this idea that, no, 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 we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And what God has revealed about what it means to be human is the truth, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a scientific truth. It's a truth that transcends science. Yeah, It doesn't contradict science, right? It actually brings science into a new and transcendent horizon. So I think that the privatization of religion is a key issue here. Um if you can make religion like science, then everybody has to accept it. So people are trying to break out of the privatization of religion. But actually, that's not how you get there. How you get there is an act of faith, right? And repeated acts of faith in what God has revealed. All right. So I think I have like 15 thoughts going through my mind right now. So I'm trying to calm myself down here. Because we talk about the, the, the conservative liberal element. So just, I just want to say this as a, as a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement. But I think, you know, what you're saying about the privatization of, of faith and all of us having to, to, to be cautious about that. I would say, even a step further, even when it comes to the Catholic faith, that the church is universal. And so, yeah, there's dogma, there's, there's teachings that, that keep us orthodox, but even within orthodoxy, it's, it's a, it's a big sandbox that we get to play in. Sure. And, Absolutely. And so we have to be cautious of, of making the church an idol, um, yes. in that, that we, whatever way that we kind of see things as becoming the dogmatic truth when, when it may not be, 
or yeah. it may be again, then that's the place of, of reverence to, to magisterium or reverence to a larger truth. Absolutely. But, but that's yeah. within kind of within ourselves as, as Catholics and kind of this liberal kind of conservative kind of arguments, but in parentheses, going back into then like a broader conversation of the world, you know, I'm, I'm thinking right now of, um, <laughs> so silly, but, uh, you ever, you're a Nacho Libre fan. You ever watch that movie with, uh, oh, yeah. Jack? Okay, yeah, so, you know, when Escalito is like, you know, I believe in science, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, but that's like the narrative is like, I believe in science, you know, that like science becomes yeah. a creed and it becomes right. a creed in its own right. And, and I think it's what's become so compelling that that, if I may say is, is part of what. Again, I'm speculating here, but tell me if I'm right or wrong, is part of what's leading to the rise in nuns in our society and the rise of people who are leaving their faith because the scientific um, preachers, if we can say that, the, the scientism evangelists, if we can say it that way, just seem to be offering a more compelling argument or answer to these how questions than what the Christian evangelists are doing. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't know. But I just, it, that seems to be what I'm experiencing. It's the age-old temptation. Think about the Israelites in the desert, right? And here they are. They're in the middle of the desert. They don't have any food, right? They start grumbling against God and against Moses, right? Because, and now think about this and compare it to science. They're looking back at Egypt. Yeah, there were slaves there, but they had food, right? They had places to live. They had everything. That, they had all this stuff that could be verified by their senses, mm. And God and, Mo, and God through Moses has asked them to set that aside and believe that somehow the desert is where they need to be, right? People want science because of certainty. Mm. Faith, faith has its own certainty, but it only comes once we say yes. Once we say, yes, I believe, I trust you, Lord. Then we begin to see, right, what God is revealing. Then we begin to see it as the meaning of our lives, but we don't get there through some kind of process of verification, right? I mean, imagine a, a, a marital relationship. You're a, you're a psychologist, so um, you, you deal with this a lot, right? A, a marriage relationship. Imagine if I said, okay, I have this hypothesis that my wife loves me. I'm going to vigorously try to disprove that. And if, I'm, uh, if, I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I fail at disproving it, then I'm going to believe that she loves me. Tell me how well that relationship is going to go. Wait, say, say that again. Go say that. <laughs> I'm married to this woman. Her name uh -huh. is Christine, right? Chris and Christine, easy yeah. to remember. Yeah. And I come up with this idea, right, that I, I, I don't know if my wife loves me. I, I, I've decided that I'm going to come up with a hypothesis. Uh -huh. I come up with a series of proofs that, that would demonstrate that my wife loves me. <clears throat> and I'm going to vigorously try to disprove my wife's love. <clears throat> I'm going to hold it as a hypothesis and I'm just going to wait and see if I can actually, you know, demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And so I begin to then test my wife's love on a regular basis, right? Rather than trusting that she loves me. Tell right. me how far I'm going to get. Right. No, not very far. <laughs> no, no. Destroy the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Faith is like that. Right. We put our faith in, what, in God and what God has revealed. First and foremost, before anything else. And only then do we try to come to understand it using philosophy. And in some ways, science can help us with that, too. Science can show us certain interpretations are not the best interpretation of what God has revealed. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So science and, and reason generally, right, are play an integral part in coming to understand our faith. But what people would prefer all the way back to the Israelites and even you and me, a constant temptation is to be shown 
Here, I've got everything I need. Science shows things. That doesn't make science bad, right? But the reason that people will be willing to say, I believe in science and not in God or in religion is because religion requires of them an assent to what God has revealed even prior to their understanding of it. So what would you say to somebody then who, who believes in scientism and that is their creed? Well, first of all, the idea that science is the only way to make truth statements that are actually true, the only, the only way or the only science is the only way we can come to understand the truth is not itself a scientific statement. It cannot be subjected to the scientific method. It cannot be empirically verified. Consequently, in a sense, it's kind of an act of, it's a perverse act of faith, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to believe that science can tell me everything I need to know about life, the universe, and everything, right? And that's it. I'm just going to do that because science gives me a certain certainty because it can be empirically verified, right? Um, You get the idea? I do, yeah. I'm going to believe that slavery in Egypt is better than being out here in the desert. Right. Because that can be empirically verified. I know there's food for me there. I know if I do my work, if I make the bricks, if I build the pyramids and all that kind of stuff, they're going to keep me alive because they need my labor. The the key that you said with this analogy is that we believe that God then calls us into the desert. I mean, that's where it becomes Mm -hmm. an act of faith is is even in our own doubts and, and, and grumblings. Man, it is easy to to want to throw in the towel and be like, ah, well, you know, listen, if that golden calf kind of give me some certainty, it, it that's that's a crazy temptation. That you're right. I mean, I think we all we all succumb to, it, especially in moments of doubts and where we have the desert moments in our own life, where it's easy to praise God when we're feeling good, but when there's moments of challenge and in suffering and in confusion, it's hard to be like, all right, Lord, well, where are you leading me? Right. You know? I'm genuinely trying, you know, the people, I know good, faithful people, man. You're just not like we're going from sin. Otherwise, it's like people who are genuinely following the Lord and, and one door keeps getting closed after another, you know, it's like, okay. So maybe scientism and people's willingness to uh, embrace it. And from what I, from, from the, from the data, there are many, many young Catholics who see faith and science in inherent conflict and 78% of Catholics, young Catholics who no longer practice their faith. One of the reasons they claim is because of science. Science. Um, I don't think that 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 first of all that that makes sense. But secondly, um, what's being lost there? Questions of meaning. I mean, if you asked, I think if any of those the ones I've asked, like how does how does science show you the meaning of your life? They fall silent because it doesn't, right? The idea is that somehow subjectively they'll produce that meaning, right? And the the threat of belief is that it says, no, God has a reason. God has the meaning for our lives. And participating in his life through prayer, through sacraments, etc., brings us to someplace we could not bring ourselves. And we like to be able to do it on our own. And in a scientifically advanced culture, we have which seems like everything we need. We have cures for our diseases. We have readily available food. We have uh, conveniences galore, right? And so maybe I'll just make consumption the meaning of my life. And so I'll just believe in science and not in religion because religion is goes far beyond consumption, right? Right, right. Back to that place of certainty. I mean, that's the word that keeps coming to my mind is that, yeah, yeah. it, it, 
it's easier, I guess, to, to say that, um, but then you trade in something else, like you said, meaning. And even right. if meaning is, if, if science could answer that, then what it would give you would be a formula, right? It would give right. you some, some certainty, but that certainty isn't inherent with really what we want anyways. I mean, we like, and this is where we're, we're kind of, we're lazy and we want things given to us. We want the certainty. We want the answers to be given to us. But then at the same time, we desire, we seek, we long, you know, and this is the conundrum of the human spirit is to, is, is kind of both, you know, this both and here. Um, and so the eclipse of religion by scientism starts to erode essential things that are uh, absolutely imperative for human happiness. Mm. First of all, relationships. Why do so many relationships break down in our society today? It's because we want the certainty of the verified hypothesis and relationships just don't work that way. When you're dealing with another free human being, they can change their minds, right? And you actually have to be patient and learn how to love them, learn how to commit yourself to them. And as their life changes, that changes. It can't be put into a formula, right? Right. Um, the idea of common good, the idea that we should be committed as human beings to the good of everyone because they have an inherent dignity. Science doesn't show you that inherent dignity. It can show you that we're all genetically the same, but the idea that we have some kind of intrinsic dignity has to come from someplace else besides science, right? Um, and when it's just assumed, when it doesn't have a transcendent divine source, it starts to erode. And we've seen that with the great catastrophes of the 20th century, Commun atheist communism, atheistic communism, um, and, you know, the totalitarianism of fascism, like with Hitler. What begins to happen is we begin to draw lines between human beings and anybody on that side of the line does not have the same dignity. Um, the idea of so so relationships, the common good, an idea of covenant that somehow my life is not about me and that I only find my happiness in making it about others in a way in which I'm irrevocably committed, right? That begins to erode. So when we say, I believe science, right? As if science is opposed to religion, which is, I want to go back to again, it's not, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, right, science, science cannot oppose religion. Look at the scientific method and tell me what in the, what in the scientific method can oppose, can oppose faith. There's just nothing there, right? But when I begin to say, I believe science, this all begins to blur. It begins to dissolve at its roots. It begins to suffer and weaken. And that's, I think, a great description of where we are in a contemporary American society. I think that's the situation that we're in. Um, and there's a lot of blame here for the church, yeah. the leaders of the church who have allowed terrible things to happen and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, it can be absolutely intolerable to think we have to follow leaders like this. Right. In right. order to be in the church. Right. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Mario Sakas, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Chris Baglow to invite you to find me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sakasa. You can keep up with me and where I'm talking and where my lectures are going to be at, as well as reviews that I have about movies or TV shows and other sort of family inspirations that kind of come to me. So I look forward to meeting you and dialoguing with you on those platforms.
if science and religion are, are in this false kind of continuum or in this false kind of boxing match against each other, the scientists are claiming something and the, and, and the, the, the religious folks are claiming something else. And what has happened, I think, and unfortunately, because of the polarization in our country, we, get, we, fall, we have fallen more into this tribalism mentality where yeah. now, because the scientists have made these claims, people of faith kind of get defensive. And so now they don't want to engage with the scientific community. And the right. scientific community doesn't want to engage with the faith community. And so we're seeing further polarization, which sure. on when, when if, we, if we then go into the side of faith, like you, you're talking about some of the problems, certainly why people are kind of leaving the church. Or, but one is that you said certainly the scandal and, and questions of witness and, and the challenge of following leaders. That's one. But the other yeah. one is that you said, and, and you put this in, your, in, your, in the preface to your second edition, and I want to quote it here. I thought it was such a beautiful, is that basically you're saying that Catholics, we have to do our job also and not just leave science to the scientists, in essence, you know, to the secular scientists, to the atheist scientists. Right. When we fail to engage in scientific inquiry or in the depth of conversation, um, we're, 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 we're failing on our part. And so this is the quote that I, that I love here, and it says, in our scientifically literate culture, ignoring science or offering only shallow reflections on it leads to the impoverishment of evangelization and catechesis and to the scorn of a world that needs the gospel. With this in mind, it is no wonder that in a culture where science is the cutting edge of human knowledge, young people who do not hear the truth of the Catholic faith in relation to it all, to science, it's everything science has to offer, to often question their religious instruction. And the religious catechesis and recognizing then that we um, have to engage with science as well. So what would you say then, like I said earlier, what would you say to a, to a secular scientist? What would you say to, to, to a faith-based individual who's looking at these questions in a shallow manner or, yeah. or looking at these things or looking at the Bible to give answers of, of biology? Sure. Okay. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example that I actually offered to the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis last November. Beautiful. November of 2018. So here are my hands. I have my keys, right? Key to my house, key to my car, and all that kind of thing. All right. Now I'm going to let go of it. And it fell. Kind of hurt, actually. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, let me do it again, just so I can show everybody to make sure you get the idea. It's an audio podcast, so. <laughs> right, right, right. It's an audio podcast. Yeah, yeah. My keys, people. <laughs> he just dropped his keys on his lap. That's what he just did. I dropped my keys, uh -huh. and I said, why did those keys fall downward? And every bishop in the room said, gravity. Right. And I said, correct. And then I said, and whose idea of gravity do you have in mind? And our beloved Archbishop Hughes actually <laughs> said, um, Newton. And I said, absolutely. Newton's idea of gravity. Now, what if I told you to set that aside and that the reason the keys fell to the ground, towards the ground, was because we find metal in the earth and everything travels to its natural place. And there was quiet in the room. And I said, that's exactly what an educated audience would have told you before Newton, 600 years ago, perhaps in the Middle Ages. They would have said, Rocks fall because they're going to their natural place um, and fire burns upward because it's going to its natural place, which is the heavens. Mm -hmm. You have the idea? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Newton came along and showed us a better way. And we have become so mentally habituated to his better way that we immediately say gravity. 
even if we couldn't come up with his universal laws of motion and give, give everybody, we know gravity is the way we see the world. It's the way we see the motion of objects in the world. Now, in a culture where young people are watching Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, NOVA, where they're going into STEM programs in school, where they're learning about scientific ideas like evolution, like the Big Bang, their minds are becoming mentally habituated to seeing the world in a certain way. And if our catechesis and our evangelization doesn't help them see how that's not in conflict, but actually can inspire a deeper understanding of the faith and a deeper theological reflection, we are failing them. That's the point that I'm making there. Mm -hmm. We're failing them. I'll give you an example. Last fall, actually right before I went to speak to the committee, the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, my six-year-old son, William, came home from school. And he proudly told me, Dad, Mrs. S. told us today that we are mammals. Right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, you're right. We are mammals. You know? The next day he came home, and he was still talking about it. And he said, he asked me a question. He said, Dad, if we are mammals, did we come from other mammals? This is a Mm six-year-old, right? He hasn't been through a STEM program yet. But already, seeing the world in terms of mammals, non-mammals, has him asking a question that points to some kind of relationship between all forms of mammalian life, what we would call biological evolution, mammalian evolution, the evolution of mammals. Mm -hmm. If I can't show him that that doesn't mean that God is not creator of all things, if I can't show him ways in which analogies between what happens in evolution and what happens in faith and the spiritual life exist and are beautiful, how am I going to help him believe in what he's learning in, in, in his religion class? I don't think I can. And so if we're not actually responding to those things, if we're not thinking those questions ourselves, if we're just giving the data as if we were talking to a kid in the 16th century, kids in the 16th century instead of the 21st century, we're missing a crucial opportunity. The new atheists, Hawking, Hawking and now the late Hawking, the late Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. Sam Harris, yep. They're perversely interpreting the world, but they're interpreting in the light of science. We're not. And so that's, I think, a key crisis. And as, as, as the director of the Science and Religion Initiative here at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, my job is helping Catholic educators, the sum total of my job is helping Catholic educators see how to bring these two together. Right? So that's, the, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's my answer to that. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, um, see, my boys ask, uh, where do, where do my nipples come from? <laughs> That's why do I have them? You know, you give them an answer to that question. You would have to start getting into embryology. Well, you do. That's why I started telling them. I was like, well, so you really want to know? And they're like, yeah. I was like, well, okay. So we have X, X, Y chromosome, but the X is the first one. And we all kind of start in one direction. And then when the Y kicks in, the testosterone kicks in. And that's what starts making us male. (laughs) The point that I made here about gravity and mammals and all of that kind of thing and being the way young people see the world today and our need to be responsive to that. Here's how John Paul II put it. He said, Christians will inevitably assimilate the prevailing ideas about the world. And today these are deeply shaped by science. The only question is whether they will do this critically or unreflectively with depth and nuance or with a shallowness that debases the gospel and leaves us ashamed before history. 
Right? That's serious. Serious. Right? Yeah, serious. And, it, and it's something that we need to be responsive to. And that's what my textbook, which is coming out in second edition at the end of October, middle of November, is trying to do at the high school level and the, and the undergraduate level. It's trying to actually uh, give people an opportunity to look at the various areas of science and understand how to bring them into relationship with each other. So what does a way forward look like for you? Like, What would an ideal situation be? Uh, well, first of all, people need to learn some theology. They need to begin to understand how the, how the Catholic intellectual tradition has answered big questions about science before. Um, how even St. Augustine was thinking about uh, questions of how to relate Genesis to what the science of his day was telling him about the world, right? Um, St. Thomas Aquinas did the same thing. We have numerous examples. Um, we need to learn some theology. We need to learn how does the church, what does the church mean But when it talks about a miracle? How does that fit into the idea that the nature has integrity and we can understand how it works? Um, the problem of evil. Science has uncovered that we live in a pretty tough world, right? Yeah. Um, uh, well, how does that jive with the idea that God creates all things out of love, right? Um, what's the difference between a scientific explanation and a theological explanation, which is where we started? Um, and then looking at the major sciences, biology, the sciences of human origins, chemistry, physics, can we see a way in which understanding those helps us reflect on Catholic doctrine? Not change Catholic doctrine, not discard Catholic doctrine, which some theologians have sadly taken that approach, but reaffirm our faith with new eyes in what God has revealed once for all in Jesus Christ, right? In scripture and in tradition as the sources by which we encounter Jesus. That's, I think, what, what, what's important for us today. Amen. Amen. So question for you, Chris, is um, as you are reading all the scientific literature, uh, personally, how has that led you to prayer or the deepening of prayer in, your, in just blessing you in your own spiritual journey? Uh, it's done it sometimes the uncomfortable way by vexing me. Mm. There are many times, especially in writing the first edition, which was the first foray I ever did into faith and science, where I would come to a new topic and I would be praying, God, how in the world am I supposed to relate this to my faith? I don't understand how these two things come together at all. And some of the things that I'm learning over here in science, they seem pretty well established, but they're disturbing to me, mm. right? Um, how do I come to see what you have revealed? Right? For me, the big, the big one was human origins. It's now my favorite topic in the faith science dialogue. Mm. But at first, it was something that, especially in those months after Katrina, where we were living in the back room of my mother-in-law's house, where there was no place to even write except in the dark uh, back rooms of the library of Notre Dame Seminary, which I wasn't a faculty member at yet, but I was using their library. Um, I would feel haunted by these questions, like, how can we be related to these hominids and be the image and likeness of God, right? Um, how could... Now I see all of those things as beautiful, but it was because I was willing to say, I'm not going to say no to things that are obvious from the perspective of reason. But I'm also never going to let go of my belief in God. So maybe I need to grow in my perspective and see how the one relates to the other. It takes time and it takes patience and it takes guidance, right, for people who are not theologians to be able to do that. And so that's kind of what my work has become. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that, because it's a beautiful <laughs> testament just to what we're supposed to do with doubt. 
And we're always going to encounter things, not always, but, you know, as we're diving deep into these questions, we're going to have moments that are going to vex us to use your word. And if, if we hold on to the truth that God exists and that God, God created being for good and his intent is good and, and we are made in his image and likeness and love. Okay. As we approach these other specific scientific questions, um, it may challenge us a little bit, but allowing that to not be, um, something that rocks our faith, but it allows us to kind of continue to grow kind of further into our faith. Um, if I may share, you know, for me personally, um, the show, have you seen the show national geographic one strange rock? No, I, I haven't watched that one. I've been watching other ones, but that's on my list of things to see. So yeah. this one is phenomenal. I'll recommend it to all the listeners as well. It's on it's on Netflix now. It's ten episodes, and yep. what it does is it every every episode reveals something entirely unique about planet Earth, and yeah. and by the time it's done, you're like, oh yeah, no wonder this is it. I mean, like all the the, the variety of things that had to happen for Earth to have life, and then for intelligent life to emerge on Earth. I mean, it's really a beautifully well done documentary. And it's, it's, it's filmed by Darren Aronofsky, who's known for like his weird kind of visuals. So the whole time yeah. you feel like you're on an alien planet, but it's earth, you know? So it's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. But for me, as I, as I, as I watched that, and then also earlier this year, when the, when the black hole image came out, um, yes. Yes. When, when that, when that picture was taken, I mean, it, it, it like, it really rocked me in a way that I was like, Whoa, like, like how does God, allow this monstrosity of a natural phenomenon to exist, you know, like if we were anywhere close to it, we wouldn't be even having this conversation. You know, it's like, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's one of these things that the marvels of the universe and the violence of the universe is, is, is one to that, that, that for me causes me to reflect. Um, because I've, I've been fascinated by, by astronomy since I was a kid. And early mm-hmm. on, when I realized how much math you had to do to be an astronomer uh, or what the day-to-day life of an astronomer is, you know, you're staring at a telescope for months, <laughs> you know, to I make know, one right? day for years to have one little breakthrough. I was like, no, I don't, I don't think that's what God's calling me to do. But I've always been fascinated with the inquiry, with the study of, of, of cosmology and the study of astronomy. Um, and it's always been a place for me to reflect on the grandeur of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the places where it's been a challenge for me, and I'll ask this and maybe you can give some insight is, when we look and you kind of alluded to this well, no, with human origins, but even before with the, the, the origins of our planet, I mean, it's a pretty violent beginning, you know, that causes us. And right. the theory now is that Earth was sharing same space with this other planet and they, they collide and that's what brought the moon. And, and this is the pretty, this is the accepted theory now yeah. as to how our moon kind of came to be. And, and it's like, wow, Lord, I mean, this is this is a pretty violent beginning. How, how do we reconcile that with the notion of, 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 uh, God's goodness? And I don't know, I don't, I don't even know what I'm asking. I guess I'm just kind of rambling at this point. Well, I mean, this is a good, this is a good example of a way to kind of get, so what theology is about, whether or not it's dealing with science or not, it has to deal with various questions that are perplexing like this. Mm-hmm. So violence, what does violence mean when there are no, there are no creatures that will suffer that violence. Right. Not a moral violence. And we're not speaking of that. We're speaking of this natural right. kind of yeah, yeah. events. I mean, evil, um, the same geologic processes that produce beautiful tropical islands also produce tsunamis that, Hurricanes. as we know back 
Dorian, look at the Bahamas right now. God bless them, these people. Physical evil seems to be, well, and by physical evil, we mean this kind of disruption. You know, a, a classic way of saying it is the life of the spider is the death of the fly. Mm-hmm. That physical evil seems to accompany all physical good throughout our universe. But what does that tell us? That tells us that this universe is not the final uh, intention in God's plan. That ultimately this universe of becoming is about bringing us to a place where we will have an imperishable life and a new heaven and a new earth in which we will have perfect communion with God and with one another, right? That this universe was not created as its own end, but God permits it to exist precisely because it produces creatures like us who are capable of knowing and loving him in return because it produces beauty, goodness, all these things that reflect his reality, but we shouldn't fasten our hopes to it. And every time we say, this is it, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I've got everything I need, got a good house, got a good car. You know what I mean? Um, I've got, I've got, you know, I've got it. Finally, I got a Kamado grill when I moved up here. That's usually one of the examples I get because I I love to like uh, grill. So anyway, it was my 50th birthday present to myself. That's beautiful. Whenever I fasten my hopes on those, and don't fasten my hopes on the author of those, right? It, then I actually am missing the point. That I'm actually giving the creature the glory and praise that I can only give to the creator. Can I see I, what I'm yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. That they all reveal the transitoriness of life and of creation. And that yeah. it's all leading towards something more. Right. That the, the period is not done at the end of the sentence here of, of the creation story. Sure. Is if I may speculate for a moment, and, and maybe you can chide me here for being a heretic, but uh, but but just let me <laughs> give me let me speculate on on you know while we're chatting here. <laughs> what did you say? I've been waiting for that opportunity the entire. Time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, is is Eden supposed to be the image of that? I mean, is Eden was Eden supposed to be the image of that place of safe haven where it was where where there was harmony, where that violence didn't exist? Or am I being too literal in my in, in am I trying to be too uh, historical or literal in my in my interpretation of of the the scripture verses there? I would think that Eden is is reflective of what this creation would be like if it was experienced by a sinless human being, right? Someone who lived in perfect communion with God's will. But notice that Eden itself. To talk about the perfection of Eden. Might be might be reading a little bit too much into the biblical narrative. It's a place that's lush, that's fertile, right? Well, I mean, you can say that about uh, South Bend, Indiana. I, I'm surprised to find out, right? <laughs> um, but at the same time, moral deception and lies can actually find their way into it. As we hear from the story in the second creation account of the serpent, right? Mm-hmm. People can can become deceived within it. Um, I, you know. Evolution tells us that that death among animals is always been the case, right? As long as there have been animals, at least on this planet, they die, right? Just by breathing in between sentences, I'm destroying microorganisms right now, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, but, what, but what the resurrection of Christ tells us is that death is not the end, that death can become a portal to life, that trying to put biology above love the crucifixion of Christ tells us that it's actually the opposite, right? G- so in evolution, 
a certain kind of sophisticated biology is necessary to produce creatures that are capable of love, you and me, right? But Christ puts love, the love that biology makes possible, he, he values that more than the biological life that makes it possible. And we see that in the crucifixion. I can see the crucifix behind your head there. I know the viewers can't. I mean, the listeners can't, right? Um, right? And by doing that, love now becomes the foundation of an imperishable life in the resurrection. Um, we can't know the mind of God about human history because we don't even know all of human history yet. We have many examples in our lives, and I'll give the example of me doing the work that I do now coming out of the catastrophe of Katrina, right, as an example, where God shows us what looks like something utterly evil and utterly catastrophic can actually be a pathway to life. But we can't see the whole picture. We have to wait till the resurrection of the dead, right, before we actually begin to see how all of this will come together to serve God's plan. The virtue of hope is fastening our perspective to that, even though, because of the limitation of our vision, we can't see it all, right? But as St. Paul says, hope does not disappoint, right? And we have to journey in faith in regard to that. We won't be able to see all of the reasons why certain things are permitted by God to happen. But ultimately, in the end, we will see how they all come together to serve his plan. Amen. Well said. That was very well said. Praise God. All right. Well, with the time that we have left, can I hit you with some some particular questions here? Sure, man. Lay it on me. All right. So uh, to whatever degree you feel comfortable answering these, let's just kind of roll through some of them. Okay. So Galileo and the church, what, what happened? Yeah. What really happened there? And why did it take over 300 years later for JP2 to, to, to apologize, I guess, in essence, or bring him back in and lift yeah. excommunication? What, 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 what happened there? Well, it didn't take that long, actually. And first of all, he was never excommunicated. There, so? Uh, yeah, boom, yeah, yeah. Boom, boom. Right, right. <laughs> uh, actually, just as soon as there were actual proofs of Galileo's idea, because he didn't have any in his own lifetime, mm. once those came about, his, his book came off the index, Copernicus's book came off the index of forbidden books, right? Um, and and uh, already you can see in the late 19th century, Leo XIII taking a different tack with something like evolution so that this mistake is not repeated. Mm. Um, there's nothing like the Galileo affair in the history of the church and science. It stands alone. Um, and it had everything to do with the papal abuse of power, politics, and little or nothing to do with the issue that was really kind of the facade of the whole thing, right? Galileo, the Pope was in a very precarious situation. The Thirty Years' War is going on. I won't go into all the details, but basically there are people at work in Rome to depose him. And Galileo humiliates him by, by, by violating the injunction of the Inquisition in 1516 not to defend the idea that the sun is at the center and the earth moves. Right? And so the Pope punishes Galileo, it's very clear, so as to show that he's in charge. That, you know, we don't believe as Catholics that popes are incapable of sin. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that in this particular case, Urban VIII works expediently to show his control of the situation. And Galileo suffers for that. 
And now we have this terrible blemish on what is otherwise a glorious history of the openness of church to science. Um, but one thing that's important to know is that Galileo could be condemned that way, not because they were hiding themselves from the evidence, but because Galileo had not demonstrated his position. Um, he had three proofs that he thought were uh, slam dunk, but they had already been demonstrated in his lifetime not to be. Um, even by everybody who's probably heard of Johannes Kepler, mm -hmm. the, the, the person who discovered the laws of planetary motion. Galileo thought that the tides were, cre were, were caused by the Earth's motion around the sun and around its axis. Kepler said, no, it's the gravitational pull of the moon. Kepler was right. Galileo was wrong. So that wasn't a proof, right? Right. Um, so basically what happens is, and a lot of people think that somehow if the church says something and then wants to change it, they have to come out and say, well, we said then, don't pay attention to that anymore. Now we'll say this. Actually, that rarely have ever happens, right? What happens is, is that people begin to say what the church previously said, don't say, and the church doesn't say, stop saying that, <laughs> right? And in the case of Galileo, that's what happens. His books are taken off the index in the early 19th century. Um, John Paul II, however, had a special mission that he felt was placed before him by the coming of the third millennium. He wanted to identify those places where Christians had sinned in the past and offer kind of a corporate repentance on behalf of the church. And the first thing he went to, I mean, literally in his first address to the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences in 1979, was Galileo. He got a special commission together. They spent most of the 1980s investigating the situation. They returned to him and said Galileo was wrongly condemned, right? And John Paul II responds by receiving that and, and this is the most important thing, calling Galileo a more perceptive reader of sacred scripture than the theologians who opposed him. Wow. Right. And that's the Galileo story. It has, it is in fact a blemish on the church's record, but it more has to do with the Pope's abuse of power than it does with science at all. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I could say more, but I think that basically hits it. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's good for now. Thanks, man. Thanks for clarifying all that and setting the record straight and, and acknowledging the errors that were on the church's yeah. side as well in the midst of all of that. Um, Darwin, when Darwin sets out to, to goes to the Galapagos islands and he's researching and this theory of evolution is emerging. Is it, and I'm asking the question here cause I don't, I don't, I'm, so I'm interviewing you cause I don't know the answer is, is <laughs> it, is he setting out to create an origin of human life that is contrary to the creation account, deliberate? Was he an atheist? Did he have an axe to grind against the church or what? Was it just kind of emerging in, in that way? Darwin actually had gone to seminary and uh, he decided not to, not to pursue that path in life. But in seminary and in his earlier education, he was educated in what is oftentimes referred to as Anglican natural theology. Uh, William Paley is an important name in this regard. And what's key to know this about, about Darwin is that they took the biblical accounts literally. And they also created an argument for the existence of God based on biological design. That if you look at a, at a, at a creature, it's so sophisticated. But there's no way it could have come about by accident or naturally. Well, Darwin discovers that, in fact, 
right? There are good natural explanations for how we get all of the sophisticated forms of life we see today. And for Darwin, that created a great crisis of faith. Mm. He didn't know how he could respond to that. But that was a failure of his education. Immediately, Catholic thinkers, um, a, a guy with a really strange name, St. George Mavart, um, Raphael Caverni in Italy, John Zahm here at the University of Notre Dame, a Holy Cross priest, begin to see, no, from a Catholic perspective, there's no problem with saying these things naturally emerged, right? In fact, that's what we ought to expect, right? At first, the church was hesitant. A couple of those books ended up on the Index of Forbidden Books. Darwin's own book never did, neither of them, actually, the two we know best, you know, um, The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man. They never end up there. And by the 1920s and 30s, Catholic theologians like Ernest Messenger are beginning to look at the scripture, look at look at the script, the, the biblical writings, look at the looking at the fathers of the church and saying, hey, we can roll with this. This is this is fine. Right. As long as we make certain qualifications. And I'll just offer the two qualifications. One of them is that we can't think about evolution as a purely random process of which God had nothing Right, did not foresee in his providence because nothing falls into that category, right? Everything, right, is either permitted by God or willed by God that we find in the universe because he's the creator of all things, holding all things in existence. And the second thing is that human beings cannot be reduced to a purely biological explanation. That somehow the advent of human beings with reason and freedom involves God in a very integrate in integral way right and what has often been referred to as the special creation of the human soul that doesn't mean that god staples a soul every time a human body is made right it's much more sophisticated than that right um right well you know like god's up there with his soul canon as my colleague Corey say. it's the factory in heaven and, and it shooting just souls, yes. right shooting souls into embryos you know as they well, it's not like that actually my soul is what makes me a living human being, but it has capacities that go beyond what any other animal we know of has. And consequently, even philosophy can tell us there has to be something more than just matter to the human soul, right? Um, it has to be more than just our genetic code, for instance, um, our, our double helix, our genome, right? Um, so anyway, so Darwin himself struggled with this to the, to the end of his life. Mm. He had been deeply impressed by Paley and the argument from design. And when he discovered something different, uh, he didn't know how to deal with it, right? But that was because his formation was lacking. Anglican natural theology was lacking. Catholic theologians who had a much more robust tradition and a much longer tradition were able to begin to respond to it positively. And that's why you see John Paul II, Pope, I mean, uh, already before him, Pius XII, um, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis all saying, hey, in, in, in so many words, we're cool with evolution. <laughs> as long as you recognize that this isn't the final word and that there's something special about the human soul and its relation to God, we can roll with it. Does Darwin ever come to a reconciliation in his heart, in his mind? In my, in my new, in the second edition of my textbook, I have a section in chapter eight called Darwin's Faith, Darwin's Doubt. And there's a lot of uh, Darwin never became a committed atheist. Mm. And there's a letter of him that says, even in my most extreme fluctuations, I would never have been called 
an atheist, right? But it seems like he may have ended his life in agnosticism, although no one will know the state of his soul and the sure. state of his mind. Sure. Died. I mean, that's just impossible for us to know. Right. But it was precisely because his own theology, the theology of his day, was not robust enough to answer yeah. and to and to dialogue with what he had discovered. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Continue this conversation we've been saying the whole time about these science questions. The truths that we find in science do challenge us, and yeah. God allows that challenge to deepen his understanding to deepen our understanding of his presence in the world and in our lives. And, 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 and it can be vexing again. That's a good word, you know, to, yeah, yeah, to right. do that. And that I got to tell you, although it sounds cha- challenging and, and difficult, I just want to assure every listener to this podcast that there are great theologians faithful to the church out there who are working on these things and who are finding out fascinating things. And for me, that's the most wonderful part of my job. I love being able to educate educators about how to bring faith in. So I love it when a science teacher comes to me and says, now I understand why I'm at a Catholic school, right? But even deeper than that is I love the way, as I begin to think about these things and go through them, how my faith is deepened and my understanding of what God has revealed is purified, refined, and made clearer precisely by um, taking science seriously. Amen. Amen. All right. Yeah. Couple, couple uh, current trends. Can I ask you just a couple questions? Maybe we can answer these if we can keep going just for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So what if we find intelligent life on another planet? What does that say about Jesus's passion, death and resurrection? Okay. Well, I'm supposed to actually address this at the Society of Catholic Scientists meeting next summer. And so I have in my research agenda for this year, getting ready for that talk. Um, I'll tell you where I'm at right now. Give it to me. And then we'll have another episode talking about alien life. <laughs> I don't think that the church will ever resolve the question, nor does she need to, mm-hmm. right? Of whether Christ's uh, redemption is universal for human beings or rational creatures on this planet or for all creatures, uh, all rational beings on every planet, right? Um, whether they're there or not, we don't know. We don't know. Right? Um but I can think of a lot of, op- of possibilities. They could be unfallen creatures. And if so, they would need uh, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ to redeem them, right? Um, it could be several incarnations. Thomas Aquinas said that there's no problem for faith to, to believe that God could have become flesh several different times, right? Um, we know he didn't, uh, at least in our planet. But it's not a problem to think about it in regard to other species on other planets, other rational creatures on other planets, other embodied images of God, right? Mm. Um, and I just want to share uh, like a, a, a small witness um, in this regard. In our program, we have a wonderful, wonderful set of summer programs for Catholic high school science and religion teachers, which people can learn about if they go to our website, mcgrath.nd.edu slash science. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Wonderful. Um, but anyway, um, one of our presenters at one of our events is Karen Oberg. Karen is an astrochemist at Harvard. She's about she's about in her mid thirties. Oh, she doesn't mind me sharing that. Mid thirties. She already has tenure at Harvard, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Awesome. Um, her her job is to talk is astrochemistry, origins of life, and exoplanets. That's what she studies. So the intersection of what we know about what have been the natural origins of any form of life. Um, and then also what about 
these planets that we're finding all over the place that are within habitable zones of stars? What would they need to have? And how would we detect life on those planets if they were there from so far away? Um, the interesting thing about Karen Uberg is that when she, um, uh, I asked her one day after a talk that she gave at the Society of Catholic Scientists meeting, by the way, there is a Society of Catholic Scientists. We're now headquartering it here at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Dr. Stephen Barr is the president. They have over a thousand members now. Um, if you ever want to learn about it, catholicscientist.org is a place to go. Awesome. Well, right, well, I'll link to that also in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over a thousand members. Now, anybody who thinks faith and science is in conflict might want to reflect on that. Right. How you could have a thousand, thousand plus scientists who are in an organization dedicated to the Catholic faith. Awesome. But anyway, Karen gave a talk at, the, at their first conference, and I, and, I, and I went up to her and made sure I got first in line to talk to her after her talk. Um, and I said, how does, um, how does a scientist and a, uh, a person from Sweden, or Sweden or Denmark, I can't remember, become a Catholic? Hmm. And she gave me a two-sentence answer, or one-sentence answer. She said, I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I became a Christian. Hmm. And then I read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and I became a Catholic. Yeah, there it is. And in her talk, she talks about, first of all, she talks about how probable she feels it is that there, are, that there is life on other planets, and maybe even intelligent life on other planets. And then she talks about why Catholics shouldn't be disturbed by that, by giving examples from theology of the past and from the Bible and that kind of thing. So one of the most mind-blowing uh, presentations I've ever heard, and one of the most exciting. That's amazing. Wow. That's good stuff. Okay. Uh, coming down to the close here, one final question, then I save this one here for the end. What about climate change on our planet and the science that's pointing towards there being a real human effect on that? Uh, well, how do we respond as Catholics? Well, the Pope has already addressed that, right? But this is a place where we can actually begin to bring together a lot of the things we've talked about here. Um, this, this, if, if we were creationists, we might think that this planet was just the place where God decided to, to you know, press a creation button and make human beings. But it's not the case. What we know is, is that God in his wisdom brought us about through a natural process of evolution, and we belong on this planet. And, we, and scripture tells us that we have a special role on this planet, which is to steward it. A steward is somebody who takes care of someone's property who is given charge of it and authority over it, needs to deal with it responsibly. And in our world of consumerism, in a world where people say, oh, yeah, I believe in science, but don't ask questions of meaning, right? What we're beginning to see is that our consumption is destroying this planet. It wasn't Pope Francis who was the first to really address this in detail. Pope John Paul II had already done so, and in his inaugural homily as Pope, the day, of his, you know, the the the, uh, the threshold of his papacy at the mass, the papal mass, Pope Benedict gave a homily and he said this, he said, the deserts of the world are growing because the interior deserts are so vast. We go out into the world and we use it up irresponsibly because we're empty inside and we need Christ to fill that emptiness. We need God's presence to fill that emptiness. And only then can the role that we have to care for the earth in little ways like recycling, um, like learning how to carpool, like, you know, instead of just driving our cars all over the place um, and, and on and on and on. And then the big 
the, the, the kind of international cooperation that's going to be necessary for us to save this planet from where we're going. Um, that's what that's the kind of impetus, the kind of power and stimulus that only religion and questions of meaning can offer. Mm. Science is not going to get us there. It might offer us the, the ways to, to get there. It's not going to bring us there. Only people who say, you know what? I am not the center of my world. The world has a future and I want to contribute to it while at the same time enjoying all the good things of it. And so I am going to be moderate in my consumption. I'm going to do that. That's the kind of answer that religion can give. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's a great way to kind of bring this thing to a close. So Chris, final two questions. Anything you would like to plug? I know you got a couple of websites. I can get links to then the, the book. Anything else you would like to, to share to, to plug while 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 you're here? Absolutely. Uh, the first one would be the book. Um, so uh, the first edition was published in 2010. And then I spent a year on sabbatical, 2017, 2018, my last year at Notre Dame Seminary, um, writing a second edition. And the book's uh, title is? Faith science and reason theology on the cutting edge and um remember i said that the book was the very first thing i ever did in faith and science and so i always felt that there was and have been a growing list of things i wish i had addressed in the first book but didn't know enough to address so i'm very very excited about the second edition because it gives me an opportunity to go into whole questions that i never even thought of and that are important for the relationship between faith and science um in the second edition not only that but um, the woman who is who I've yet to meet in person, who is doing the layout for the book, has created a book that is ten times even more beautiful than the first. Very beautiful edition, um, uh, with great images and captions. Um, so I'm excited about that. The other thing I would want to go back to is McGrath.nd.edu/science. If any of the listeners are themselves educators. If you work in high school education in particular, in science or religion, or you know someone who does, please tell them about our site and have them sign up. We have this wonderful week-long seminar with scientists, philosophers, and theologians. We have two of them every summer, one in New Orleans, one here at Notre Dame. And it gives science and religion teachers an opportunity to come together and learn how to cooperate to help young people see the harmony between faith and science. And they get a free library of books and they get free room and board and they even get a really nice stipend, about $750 a participant. So that's something else I would mention again, mcgrath.nd.edu slash science. Praise God. Great things, man. So much good stuff that you got going on. Yeah, so, yeah dude. So last question, ask all my guests, Chris Baglow, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope are the Catholic educators that I work with. Um, we, anybody who knows anything about Catholic education knows that the people who do it, they do it at an enormous sacrifice to themselves and their families. And what's exciting to me is that rather than just turning the crank and saying, hey, I'm underpaid and overworked, and so I'm not going to go the distance. The Catholic educators that I meet from all over the country that come to our seminars and the ones that we meet when we go out and do our institute days at various places, these are people who love God love the young people that they teach, love the people that they that they serve, and actually are willing to do extra professional development, listening to people like me talk about the integration of faith and science, so that they can give them what they need. And so that gives me great hope. Great, great hope. Awesome. Well, 
Thanks, man. So Chris Baglow, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Great answers, great conversations. And I hope that it was just a blessing to to the listeners. And I hope hope you enjoyed your time also. So thanks for coming, man. Certainly a blessing to me. And on this first Monday night football with the <laughs> Houston Texans, may I end by saying, go Saints. Go so. Saints. That's right. right. Who that? Who <laughs> that? Well, that's it. Another great show is in the books for you. What's the takeaway? Well, for me, as I reflect on this episode, I have to say Chris is pretty knowledgeable about this. I've, I've always had this fascination with science. I shared that in the episode today that for a long time, I've always been fascinated by um, astronomy and by biology. And it's what drew me even to psychology and understanding of the human person that we should not ignore or be afraid of the questions that science is, is asking and answering, while at the same time recognizing that we need faith to guide these things. We need morality to, uh, to answer questions related to bioethics and um, and in terms of understanding our place in the universe, it's faith ultimately that gives us the, the final answer um, that we are created in love and for love by a God who, who, who is love. And so we should not be afraid of looking at science while at the same time we should, uh, should not be afraid if we are somebody who is of a scientific mindset to be open to the questions of faith and recognizing that there are limitations that science has and science cannot answer every question that there are other tools so to speak in the tool belt other questions other modes of thinking that that may give more substantial answers to the deeper questions of life so if you listen to the show keep moving forward i pray that it's been a blessing to you and that uh that it's just been able to help you have a little bit more hope today so god bless everybody uh, again uh, like the show share with your friends and I hope that you have a great day. Be good.